authority will always be used to either bring glory or dishonor to the Lord. Because all authority derived from Him. He's the one who establishes authority. Remember, under the Old Covenant, Israel, they needed the, the office of priest, they need the office of prophet, they need the office of king, and now the church as this new covenant people in Christ Jesus, we do not need a priest to come to God to mediate for us. And you got to understand with the new covenant, the whole church is a kingdom of priests. And the church as the priests under the old covenant, remember the priests, they were supposed to protect the, the, the sanctuary of the Lord. They had the duty to keep the temple clean. And this duty is passed to all the members to keep the church clean. And we know that the church has no authority to save or send anyone to hell. Only Jesus has this authority. But when we say that we are putting someone out of the church, we are declaring to the best of our ability, with the authority that Christ has given us, we do not see fruit of salvation in this person's life. And the person should fear because probably, most probably, that's what Jesus will say on the last day. I never knew you. First Corinthians chapter 5. Let's read verses uh, 3 through 5 here. Paul says, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So now let's move to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm not implying that's the same situation. What I, wanna, I want you to see is how the congregation is the one with the final authority to expel and receive members. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, starting verse 5. Paul says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. You may be seated. How important is church government? If we were to ask Christians, how important is the subject of church polity or most Christians first, they will be confused with church polity, and they're going to say it's policy, not polity. And true is polity, how the church is organized and how the government of the church is established. So you think about how important it is in the life of the Christian. Because that's what we are studying, that's what we have been looking at, and it could come across as, that's so pointless. Why are we studying how the church is supposed to be governed? Isn't government a secular thing, a worldly thing? Why are you bringing government into the church? Uh, just 
knowing so many Christians and Christians who have spent decades in different churches, you look at some Christians and you see how involved they were in churches for 10, 20 years, leading Bible studies, leading home groups, for many years attending a church. Yet they were never involved with the crucial and vital aspects of the church life. For example, they were never called to exercise discernment as to who they should welcome as a new member. Who should be put away from the congregation. They were never involved in appointing new leaders. Voting in relation to who should be baptized. And never involved with doctrinal matters in the life of the church. Consequently, there's a consequence. Once you, you can spend 20, 30 years in church, and because you're never involved with these very special, very important things, consequently, your growth will be hindered. You think about government. You think about government in a country, as you're thinking in a broad way, how the government of a country affects its citizens. Right? How the government of a state affects the people who live in, in that state. The government in a city. The government in a family. How the parents govern a household. There will be tremendous impact in the life of the children. Why would that be different in the life of the church? And then suddenly... We want to think that the government in the church has no impact or no effect in the life of the church members. Authority will always either be used for the glory of God or to bring dishonor to Him. Authority will always be used to either bring glory or dishonor to the Lord. Because all authority derives from Him. He's the one who establishes authority. So the purpose of these sermons as we are studying church government is to equip you, the church, to bring glory to God by knowing how He wants His church to be governed. Amen? So we're going to continue our journey here through church government. We're going to just review what we saw last Lord's Day and then we're going to move to the new areas that we need to cover. So we're going to look at what pastor-led congregationalism means. We're going to continue looking at what congregationalism means. And then what pastor-led or elder-led means. Okay, so we saw as we come to the question of church government, the main question is who is in charge of the church? Who governs the church? And we saw that Jesus Christ is the ultimate head, pastor, elder, leader of the church. Consequently, every local church will have to give an account, not to a different denomination, but to Christ alone. Every single church will give an account to Jesus Christ. We also saw that the question of who is in charge, yes, there is this easy, simple, straightforward answer that Jesus is the ruler of the church. But also there is a more complicated, as we start thinking, how he's working out his authority in the local church. So, 
Sometimes we see in the Bible how Jesus commands the whole congregation, the whole church to do something. As if the church has authority to do something. And other, t other times, Jesus is commanding the elders, the pastors, the leaders to do something with authority. So we see that both the congregation and the leaders have authority under Christ Jesus. So we saw that as we put together, while all that the New Testament shows us about church government, we see that we have elements of a monarchy. Christ Jesus is king. There's, there's an aspect of a senate, a senate or oligarchy where you have leaders, pastors, elders with authority to lead. And there is a democratic element, and that is that the people also have authority in certain areas of the church. So our goal as Christians is just to be faithful to the Scriptures. Sometimes we, we always want the easy answer. What is the easy answer? It's Jesus, the whole congregation. Just the pastors. And our duty is to put together and live faithfully to God. So we must acknowledge the ultimate authority and rule of Jesus Christ. The final earthly authority of the congregation in certain areas. And the everyday leadership and oversight of the elders or pastors. And we saw as we put these things together that we believe that the best way of a church to be government, the most biblical way, is what we call, theologians call, an elder or pastor-led congregational church. Pastor or elder-led congregational church. And we saw that, it's very simple, if you want to define that, as we think about pastor-elder or pastor-led congregational church, is our scriptural conviction that the gathered congregation of believers as a whole, led by biblically qualified elders, has final earthly authority to render judgment about the what and the who of the gospel, all under the lordship of Christ. And I'm not going to spend much time here because we went through that last Lord's Day, and then we moved to understand better, okay, we are talking about Elder-led, pastor-led congregational church. Okay, so let's look at congregationalism. What it means to be a congregational church. And we saw that the congregational authority is in matters of discipline, doctrine, personal dispute, and church membership. Those are the main areas where the congregation has final authority. And we saw that that's the fruit of the new covenant. Remember, under the old covenant, Israel, they needed the, the office of priest, they need the office of prophet, they need the office of king, and now the church, as this new covenant people in Christ Jesus, we do not need a priest to come to God to mediate for us. And we look at what it does not mean, and that's always important to look at the negative. What it does not mean to be a congregational church. And we saw that congregationalism is not the same as the American democracy. Where everybody has the right to say whatever they want and to vote however they want. Remember the American democracy, the idea that everyone has the right to pursue their own happiness. Not in the church. We are not pursuing our own happiness. We are pursuing the happiness of the Lord Jesus and the happiness of the body as a whole. 
We also saw the, the congregation. Congregationalism does not mean that the church makes the pastors. Christ Jesus makes the pastors and the church recognizes those men. And also we saw that congregationalism does not mean that the congregation is always right. So we saw that last Lord's Day, then we moved to what it means. What it means to be a congregational church. And we saw that congregationalism is the authority of the church first dealing with matters of personal disputes among members. So where the, the threat of the unity of the church is at, in game, the whole church has authority to be dealing with these things. So we saw, for example, in Romans 15, where Paul calls the whole church, or in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul calls the whole church to come and help these two sisters who are having issues. We also saw in matters of doctrine, the whole church has authority to say, no, 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 no. That's a false gospel. We will not accept a false gospel. We saw in Galatians 1, Paul is addressing the pastors. Is that who Paul is addressing in Galatians 1? He's addressing the whole church and saying, you guys are responsible for the bad teaching that's taking place in this church. And the fact that the church can remove leaders implies that the church has authority to appoint leaders. If the leaders are preaching false teaching, living immoral lives, so that's the authority of the church to say, no, 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 that's harming the gospel in our church. So let us continue. That was just a review. So let's continue to look at what congregationalism means. And it means that the church has final authority in matters of corrective church discipline. The church has authority in matters of discipline. And I want to invite you to please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And there we see Jesus giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter and the apostles representing the church. And he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you what? bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's the promise. And now turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. And they're going to see how these keys are being applied in the church here. And now we have a situation, personal matters in the life of the church. So Jesus says, if he refuses, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And look at that. Truly I say to you, now the whole church, not just Peter. Or the apostles. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and you're going to see the similarities of the passages as is applied now to the whole church. So here is a very 
practical illustration of Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Look at that. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said? Two or three gathered in my name. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. What is that? That's the binding and loosing, the exercising of the keys. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is calling the church to exercise Matthew 16, Matthew 18. It's given to the whole church. And you've got to understand, with the new covenant, the whole church is a kingdom of priests. And the church, as the priests under the old covenant, remember the priests, they were supposed to protect the, the, the sanctuary of the Lord. They had the duty to keep the temple clean. And this duty is passed to all the members to keep the church clean. The members of this church, you have a duty to keep this church clean. It's given to the church. It's interesting that Paul notes that the whole church is guilty. The whole church. Because the whole church has accepted that man living in immorality to be with them. He says, because you all have accepted him, you all are guilty, and you all must kick him out of the church. Notice that Paul is not rebuking the leaders of the church, but the church as a whole. The church, of course, the leaders are included, but this is for the whole church. And it's amazing that Paul says that he already has exercised judgment. Paul is saying, looking at the whole situation, my judgment is this, but I cannot pass this judgment on your behalf. I don't have, Paul is saying, even as an apostle, I don't have the authority to kick this man out of your church. This authority was not given to me, this authority is given to you, the church. Isn't that amazing? Paul could not expel the man from their church. It would be beyond his authority. The church must do it. And Paul is teaching the church, you must exercise this authority that Christ has given to you. And we know that the church has no authority to save or send anyone to hell. Only Jesus has this authority. But when we say that we are putting someone out of the church, we are declaring to the best of our ability, with the authority that Christ has given us, we do not see fruit of salvation in this person's life. And the person should fear because probably, most probably, that's what Jesus will say on the last day. I never knew you. Not only that, but the congregation has also final authority in matters of church membership. We saw if the church has authority to remove a member, we can conclude that the church has authority to receive a member. And that's all we see. Now you can turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter 2. Apparently, he had a member, that, that one of the members, was, he was excommunicated from the church. And we don't have any grounds to say that that's the same man of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That, it's probably a different case here. But we know that there was one member of the church in Corinth that had been excommunicated. Look at what Paul says. 
Now if anyone has caused pain, he ha- pain he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, do not put it too severely to all of you, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul is saying, I can see his repentance. His, repent, his repentance is real. It's a godly sorrow. And now it's time for you, church, to see. Paul cannot just welcome him as a member back. The church must do it. And notice, note that Paul speaks of the punishment inflicted by whom? The majority. Somehow, Paul and the church in Corinth knew that there was a majority of members voting. We are not told how they vote, was raising hands, secret ballot, we don't know. But we know that there was a voting and the majority of the members vote to excommunicate him. Maybe implying that a minority did not. So sometimes in a congregation, church, congregational church, goes for the majority. So as we can see, congregationalism has nothing to do with personal likes, dislikes, personal opinions, but with major gospel decisions in the life of the church. Members will not vote on everything or express their opinion about everything. That's not biblical congregationalism. The members' authority is related to doctrine, membership, leadership, and discipline. Very important to keep this clear. And then you might ask, how about church budget? Because we as a church, we vote on budget. And we will not find in the New Testament any verse, any text in the Scripture saying that the church should be voting on budget. But in light of wisdom, uh, I would say prudence, I think when the church is making major decisions with major financial steps, it's wise, especially because somehow it will be connected to the gospel in the life of the church. We are not talking about every day and every financial expense. The Lord has given pastors with the authority to supervise and manage the, ma- the money in a Christ-honoring way. But when it comes to major investments, say substantial increase of one salary, that's what happened some time ago. A substantial increase of salary. There's a voting. Buying property. Big investment in missions. Sending someone to the mission field. It's wise and prudent to have a congregational vote. And let me tell you that churches will vary. It varies because of the size of the church and the budget of the church. We think about a church of 50 people, 50 members. Maybe to buy a van, a $20,000 van, will require voting because of the small budget that the church has. But for a church of 1,000 members... With a lot of money in the bank, that doesn't need. So it varies from church to church. Each church, when it comes to budget, will have different factors and things to vote on. Amen? So I like what Jonathan Lehman says. He, he writes, In matters that are central to the church, being the church, no matter the time and place, 
the elders exercise authority by teaching and equipping the congregation to exercise the congregation's own authority to make church-establishing decisions. And the congregation should trust and submit to the elders so long as the elders instruct. Instruction is prescribed by Scripture. He says, In matters that vary between one church and another, the elders generally exercise authority by making decisions, and the congregation should trust and submit to the elders so long as the elders do not contradict Scripture. This, I propose, is biblical elder leadership and congregational rule. And let me just uh, a pastoral word for business meeting. Sometimes we have our congregational business meeting. And remember the, these types of meetings. I love what Spurgeon said. He said that business meetings were never just business meetings. But were always worship gatherings, opportunities to with one mind seek the mind of Christ. So the business meeting is not just about you, what you want. But remember, we are seeking the mind of Christ, what Christ wants for this church. In our church, we have different methods for voting. Sometimes we have the raising of hands, yes and nay, closed ballot, emails. But the voting must always be used for the glory of God and the well-being of the church, not for your, your own personal preference and likes. Amen? We, when you become a member in this church, that's one of the things that we promise as members. I will use my vote wisely, based on sound biblical knowledge and not just personal opinion, to affirm appoint, appointed elders and deacons, as well as new members, as part of the covenant family, and any financial decision that are deemed necessary for a vote by the elders. For the sake of the glory of God and the good of my brothers and sisters, I will further use my vote wisely and humbly when the situation of removing a member from the covenant community unfortunately arises. At no time will I use my vote for any personal vengeance or for selfish purposes. That's all we promise when you become a member in this church. We're promising to vote not on what I like and want, but what the Lord Jesus wants. And, if, and do not use the business meeting to be asking personal questions that you have. There is an agenda. If you have questions, you can come because it can become distract, very destructive. So you can always come to me when you have more elders to ask, hey, what do you guys think about that? But in the business meeting, the Lord has appointed the leaders to lead the business meeting. So do not use the business meetings as an American democratic way to, how about this and this? That's not the place. You can always come to the leadership and ask in private. And if it's something that we need to address, amen, thank you, let's address that. So, that's the congregational aspect of our church, what it means to be congregationalist. Now, there is the other aspect, and that is, the first part, the pastor, elder-led. What does it mean to be an elder-led? You see, because many churches, they're elder-ruled. And that means that the congregation has no authority. The elders have the rule. They make all the decisions. The congregation has no voice. So remember the question, who is in charge of the church? 
Jesus. And Jesus, in His grace, He passes authority to the whole congregation in some very specific areas. And as we saw, the church is not going to be voting on everything and anything. Why? Because He has given leaders to the church. I like what Sam Amadi says. He writes, If the church starts a new Sunday school class, does the congregation need to meet to vote on, on who should teach the class? If the church puts a new carpet in the sanctuary, does each member need to give input on what color it should be? Does the whole church need to create the church budget from scratch each year? Then he says, Thankfully, the Bible shows us that the church doesn't have to gather to vote on every conceivable issue. Can you imagine if you had to vote, have a congregational meeting every time to vote about everything? That would be chaotic. And then, and then you lose importance. If everything is important, then nothing is important. Instead, the Scripture teaches that another group of people in the church are also responsible for the church's life and ministry. That group of people is called the elders. In the Bible, elders, also called pastors, are commissioned by Jesus to give leadership to the congregation. So it's important because sometimes we, so in some churches are like that. It's congregational rude and you have no leaders. The leaders have no importance at all. And that's not what the Bible says. Congregationalism does not mean that the pastors, the elders, are just there for appearance. No, they have authority. So I would say that in a healthy, spirit-led, regenerate, Christ-centered, Bible-driven congregation, the authority of the leaders and the authority of the congregation under the authority of Jesus Christ beautifully display the superiority of the new covenant. That's my argument. It's important. Pastors or elders, they have real authority in the church. And sometimes you can come from a, a church where the pastors, the elders were very authoritarian. They thought that they alone were the rulers of the church. And sometimes the temptation is to, we don't need pastors. We don't need leaders. They don't have authority. Just us. But the Bible is clear. Paul says, to the Thessalonians, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are what? Over you in the Lord and then admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The Lexicon Bible says those who rule over you, or if you have the NASB, says those who are in leadership over you. They have a real leadership. Or you think about 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul says, let the elders who what? rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. There is a real authority that Christ gives to pastors. Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and always groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And honestly, when members cannot do that, obey and submit with joy, you either need to repent or find a different church. 
Because that's not healthy. That's not good. So you see that there is a real authority given to the leadership as well, not just the congregation. Peter also talks about the, the shepherds to shepherd the flock of, of God, exercising oversight, says those in your charge. But here's what is important to keep in mind. I, I said last Lord's Day that the congregation's authority is completely bound to the Word of God. And the pastor's authority also is completely bound to the Word of God. The obedience and submission required for the congregation to the leaders is grounded on the leader's obedience and devotion to the Word of Christ. The authority of an elder depends in large part on his faithfulness to God's Word, both in doctrine and in life. So unless the pastors or the pastor is clearly contradicting the Bible, clearly contradicting the Bible, perverting the gospel, and harming the integrity of the church, then the congregation has an obligation to obey and submit and honor the leaders. Amen? So, I just want to briefly talk a little bit about the pastors, deacons. We are going to cover more, especially the elders, pastor, when you come to Titus, because right in the... Starting verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul is going to be dealing with the eldership position. So I plan on covering in more detail when it comes to Titus 1. So first, as we come to the elders, that's why I said elder or pastor led. Why? Because the terms elder, pastor, bishop, overseer, they're all used interchangeably throughout the New Testament referring to the same office. And we see that as we put the scriptures together, uh, in Acts, First Timothy, Titus, First Peter chapter five, and there is the same words used for the same office. These different words used for the same office. So the word elder conveys not that the man is older, but the idea that the man has a spiritual maturity, and he is respected because of his character. So elder is who he is. The term bishop. It's funny, we don't use the word bishop, right? Uh, unless in, you're in some, especially uh, some other denominations, y you might have the, the bishop. But the bishop is the overseer, episkopos, that's the Greek, the one who is over, exercising oversight over the church. So that's what he does. He has the duty of supervising, governing the church. And the other word is the pastor. And I think that refers to both who he is and what he does. He's a Christ-like shepherd, shepherd who protects, leads, and feeds the flock of God. And we're going to see that, but all the elders, they have the same authority. Okay? It's not like the, the, the teaching elder or the pastor. So, it's normal for us to use the word pastor for the one who is preaching constantly. And that's normal. It's just the use of, okay... The pastor is the one who is often preaching. The same way that we don't use the word bishop anymore. We, and sometimes people have a hard time with the word elder, especially because of Mormonism. But the one who is preaching, the one who is teaching, the pastor, teaching elder, however you want to call that, he does not have two votes while the other elders in the congregation have one. He has one vote, just like the other ones. So, 
as we think about pastors or elders or bishops, these three words are always used for the same office. Sadly, in many churches, especially Baptist churches, they change the things and they start using the word deacon, the office of deacon, as if he was a pastor. So suddenly you have a board of deacons in a church where they actually act as the elders of the church. But the elders are not deacons, and the deacons are not elders or pastors. So who are the deacons? Let's talk a little bit about deacons. We're going to cover more the elders when you come to Titus, who the deacons are. Even though pastors are servants and the deacons are servants, they are serving in different areas. The Lord Jesus has given to the church another office to serve between the pastors and the congregation. You have the pastors, the congregation in between. When it's needed, you have the office of deacons. And it's important for us to be clear that the word office, when applied to deacons, does not imply that they have authority over the church. The word office implies that they have a recognized position of service. You see, the church is never called to obey and submit to the deacons. Have you ever found a verse in the New Testament that said that the church is supposed to obey and submit to the deacons? No. Deacons are never called to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine, like Paul says to the elders. And also, we must be kind of careful with the office of deacons because the Bible doesn't say much about that. I say that deacons are important when the elders or pastors, they are being hindered from accomplishing their task. And the church should never appoint deacons just for the sake of having more men in leadership. We can define the office of deacon as, from his methods, he says, Deacons are model servants appointed to a local church office. They are deployed to assist the pastors or elders by protecting the church unity, organizing practical service, and meeting tangible needs. That's the office of deacon. I like how he puts, he, he says that the elders lead ministry, the deacons facilitate ministry, and the congregation does the ministry. I think that's a good way how he summarizes. And the deacons, the office of deacons, to be a deacon, you need to meet qualifications. It's amazing how the Bible is, places qualifications for the office of deacon. And most scholars would agree that Acts chapter 6, that's the beginning of the office there, and 1 Timothy 3 are the places where you find the qualifications to be a deacon. Like elders, deacons must reflect Christ Jesus. So let me set you an example here. So think about that with me. Think about a church. They have Richard. Richard is the most generous giver in the church. Then you have Greg. He's the most successful businessman in the church. Then you have Mark. He's an amazing handyman. He can fix anything. You have Daniel, who is always ready to serve. You call him, he's there. You have Gregory, who has been in church for over 25 years. And then you have Fred, who is in seminary preparing himself for ministry. So my question is, who among these men are qualified to serve as deacon in the church? The answer is we don't know. 
We haven't heard about their character. Do they, ma do they match the qualifications of First Timothy 3? You see, sadly, most Christians think about deacons in light of men's standards. <laughs> A deacon is not chosen simply by the amount of work he has done. In Acts chapter 6, we see that they must be full of wisdom. They must be trusted by the elders since they're going to be working side by side with the elders. And as you're reading, you can turn there with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Starting verse 8, he starts giving the qualifications for the deacons. The first thing, they must be dignified. Implying that these men, they carry the dignity of being bought with the blood of Christ. Notice also, they, they cannot be, be double-tongued. Benjamin Merkel writes the following about being double-tongued. The deacons, or those who are aspiring to be deacons, they cannot be slippery with their words, seeking to manipulate situations for their own personal good. Notice also that the deacons must be tested first, verse 10. And let them also be tested first. I like what Ben Merkel writes. He says, Allowing someone who has not been tested to be a deacon can later lead to many problems. As with the elders, time is needed to assess the candidate because the sins of some are not immediately apparent. Thus, a hasty appointment to the office is unwise and contrary to the intent of qualifications. So, brothers and sisters, it's a beautiful office. It's a beautiful office. When it's rightly, rightly placed in the church. These men are, so, are called to be servants. They're supposed to be preserving the unity of the church. That's Acts chapter 6. Dever says that we cannot have people serve as well as deacons who are unhappy with the church. So, I would argue that's a glorious office. They come alongside when the church needs to help the congregation, help the elders. But they are not elders. Going back to the office of elders, the qualifications. We saw the qualifications for elders. What are the qualifications? And that, as I said, I'm not going to spend much time here because we're going to cover when you go through Titus. But similar to the deacons, it's all about character. How well they look like Christ. How much they look like Jesus. How, how about number? That's an important question going back here. How many? How many pastors a church must have? How many elders? The Bible never tells us. Uh, there seems to be a, a, a good... Wisdom in plurality of elders, especially as the church is growing. It's important. And then the last one is, what do pastors do? What is the role of the pastors or elders in the church? And we can say that the main duties of the pastors or elders can be summarized as follows. To teach the church sound doctrine. To protect the flock from false teachers. To equip the church to the ministry. Supervise God and govern the church and be an example to the church. So, 
think about, uh, especially as you're dealing with elders, and sometimes the aspect of governing a church. There's so many areas where the elders, the pastors are going to be called to exercise oversight, and sometimes can be frustrating for the congregation. So I would say, for example, uh, Bible studies or books in, that they're going through the church. What are those books? The books read in church. That's the role of the pastor to be supervising. What type of Bible studies are taking? How many of you know of churches that were torn apart because of Bible studies with heretical books and false teachings that suddenly permeated the church? So it's the role of the elders, the pastor, to be overseeing that. Uh, the shepherding includes personal visitations, pre- and post-marital counseling, new members interview, baptism, examining the, those who are aspiring to be baptized, leading in the church discipline. So all these things are the role of the pastors, the elders. So we, see, we can see here how beautifully the Lord has organized His church to have the authority, His authority, over the congregation, to exercise in those specific areas, and to the elders or pastors to exercise the authority where the Lord has called them. So, as we come towards the end of this series, and I, I pray that this series here on what it means to be a Reformed Baptist Church has been good to you. The goal of this series was to glorify our triune God by bringing clarity and unity among the members in relation to some of the core doctrines that we hold together. So being a Reformed Baptist Church, what does it mean to be a, a Reformed Baptist Church? It means that we trace our roots to the Scriptures. The Reformation was God's ways to bring His church, His people back to the Bible. So that as we open the Bible alone, we can see that Christ alone saves us. For His glory alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. And as Baptists, we believe that the object of Christ's saving work is the church comprised of regenerated, spirit-indwelled believers. And to this church, Christ has given authority and He has given leadership to lead the church. So, my prayer is that this series will be used by God to bring glory to Him so that we as a church can Keep preserving the unity that He bought for us. Amen? So it was a joy. It was 25 sermons in this series. And it was a delight. A delight. I enjoy truly. Amen? So let's pray. Father, we, we thank You for this wonderful, wonderful time, Lord, of just all these months laboring as a church to know what we believe, what we hold together as the main doctrines, especially looking at salvation and Christ Jesus, our Savior, the work of redemption by the triune God, redeeming His people from hell, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then looking at the glory and the beauty of the church, how You have organized the church, how You bought the church. And Lord, we pray that this series will bring glory to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.